0: For a lot of people, this season can be one of disappointment. Maybe we didn't get, I know as a kid, I can remember not getting the gift that I had hoped for, right? Anybody ever experienced something like that? No, never, right? Yeah. Uh, Or... Maybe we didn't get the help that we needed to accomplish something or uh, we couldn't provide for our family the way we wanted to, right? Um, Like Tom said, this week we're looking at the topic of hope. Um, the, The miracle that is the birth of Christ reminds us that God keeps His promises forever. Whether we feel disappointed or not, His promises are true. Um, so, this morning, when you're looking up here, because I know it's more pleasant than looking at me, um, when, when you look at that candle there, remember that God loves us And the hope that he gives us never fails. So as we begin our Advent season this year, doing things a little bit differently, our text has already been read, our scripture has already been read for today. In case you are wondering, it's Romans chapter 2, sorry, chapter 5. I'll get all the numbers, they might not be in the right sequence. Romans chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, was the passage that Tom read for us this morning. And uh, that word hope is used over 80 times in the New Testament. Another 80 times plus in the Old Testament. It's a word that in the English has a much different application than it does in Scripture. Paul says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So I started this the way I normally do. I start looking at the words. I start looking at the, the sentence construction, the ideas, the context, where we're at, and I hit that word rejoice. So there are a couple of tools that, that when you, you go through any kind of classes that they teach you how to, how to properly study the Bible. These don't have to be college classes. These can be church classes. These can be uh, whatever, you know, university extension classes, whatever kind of class you go to. They teach you how to study the Bible. One of the things they tell you you got to have is a dictionary. Right? We talked a little bit about language in Sunday school this morning. When, when we look at words, it's important for us to know what the meaning of that word really is, as opposed to what we might think the meaning of the word is, right? So I saw that word rejoice, and I dug out on the internet my dictionary passage. All right, what does rejoice mean? So I had this whole translation and everything, and then I went to the Greek to see what word was used in the Greek, to see how different that is. And, wow, it's different. Uh, the word that is translated as the word rejoice, uh, there's only a couple of places in the New Testament that it's actually translated as the word rejoice. Most of the time, it is translated as the word glory. Not as in a noun, but as in a verb. Another word, it's, it's often translated as, as the word boast. So we know what boasting is, right? Scripture tells us over and over again not to boast. Except in what? Only in Christ, right. Um, another word that kind of fits this picture is the word revel. We revel in something. So when Paul says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, he's saying we we revel in it, we boast in it, we, we glory in it, we bask in it, we, we, we're like a pig in a sty, right? You know, I, I'm, I'm going to show a little bit of country today that, you know, happier than a pig and slop. There you go. Yeah, that's, that's a picture we understand, right? Why do pigs roll around in the mud the way they do? Is it because they're dirty animals? It cools them. Pigs are one of those animals that does not have the ability to sweat. It does. It helps keep the bugs down. It helps keep them cool. And they're susceptible to sunburn. In fact, in medical science, one of the most often used animals to simulate human tissue is the pig. (laughs) I really prefer scriptures comparing us to sheep. (laughs) Than medical science comparing us to pigs, but hey, whatever works, right? So we get this idea when you see a, a a pig on a hot summer day approach a cold mud puddle. That's what Paul's talking about when he says we rejoice, we we glory in it, we 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 revel in it. We, we're like a pig in slop in the hope of the glory of God. That's a picture right there, right? Because in our modern church vernacular, right? Let the people say rejoice. Yay. Right? We are the people who are supposed to be joyful. And we walk around and, hey, how are you doing today? I'm blessed. Well, that's good. Right? Most of the time we look beaten, not blessed. We look... We look tired, not joyful. But here Paul tells us that we should be rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Wow. When when we rejoice like that, we shout about it. We jump up and down. We exude joy and happiness. When we say the word rejoice, it should not be a yay. Kind of like when I said good morning this morning. And I got back, yeah, morning. Right? You sound like my office when the coffee pot ain't ready yet. Good morning. When we rejoice like that, we can't shut up about it. Is that how we live our lives? And look, I'm two words into this passage. We rejoice. That's what Paul's telling the Romans about life in Christ. We rejoice in what? In hope. In hope. Here's that word, again, that I said is so different in Scripture than it is here. When we say, I hope something happens, there is an element of doubt. There's an element of uncertainty. Right. Since we're down here on the coast, I will go ahead and, and I'll just stick with what is common down here on the coast. Right. Who's going to win the Super Bowl? Well, the answer down here is going to be, well, I hope the Saints win. Right. That's the, the common answer down here on the coast. I hope the Saints win. I don't even know where the Saints are in the, the rankings or, or anything like that. I don't pay attention to it, but but there's uncertainty there. Right. I hope. I don't know. I have no guarantee. It's doubtful. But it could happen, right? Did you get that pay raise? No, I hope I'll get it in a couple of weeks. I hope. Did you get that promotion at work? I hope. I've done it. Did you get that new job yet? Oh, I hope. There's that uncertainty. There's that doubt. But. But. Going back to Paul's language, the word that he uses is not a word that carries doubt. It is a word for expectation. It's a word that means I expect. I'm certain this is going to happen. There's confidence in it. There's surety in it that what we desire or what we expect will happen. Not that it might happen or that it could happen, but it will happen. So let me go back to the text. We glory in the certainty of the glory of God. That's what Paul said we revel in the certainty of the coming glory of God. I'm looking at a bunch of wax figures in a museum here. Y'all Y'all just ain't catching on to this rejoice bit. I know the joy candle is a couple of weeks down the road, but come on, at least put a face on. Maybe this will help a little bit. There's an image in the New Testament that is used often uh, for the concept of that certain hope. And that is the image of an anchor. Now, as as an Air Force uh, retiree, as as an airman, uh, and as somebody who can't swim a lick, um, I mean, I can probably save myself if the shore's not too far, but that's about it. I am not a small boat person. But you all do know that my preferred form of vacation is on a big boat, right? That's, that's my thing, right? I am familiar with the concept of an anchor because the anchors on those ships are huge. They're like the size of my Suburban. Yeah, They're, they're huge with these big, massive chains. And this idea of an anchor... What does an anchor do? It holds the boat in place, place, right? Now, even growing up, we had the pond. Many people called it a lake. It was a little bit too small to be a lake by technical definition. It was a big pond, right? And when I went out in the boat... If the boat had an anchor, not often, (laughs) the anchor was used to keep me from having to stop fishing and paddle back to the place where I wanted to be. Because while I'm sitting there fishing, the current, even in a pond, there's a current, right? The current would push me from this end of the pond over here to the spillway, (laughs) to this end of the pond. And if there was a breeze coming out of the prevailing wind position, that would push me from this end of the pond to this end of the pond. Well, I wanted to fish over there. So you put down an anchor. Now, that anchor is something that keeps us from being swept about by the current, swept about by the wind, swept about by the waves, whatever. For us as believers... That certain hope is our anchor. That guaranteeing promise is our anchor. That certainty is what keeps us from being tossed around. Because we can have a confident expectation that whatever God has promised will happen. We don't have to worry about God changing His mind. We don't have to worry about God changing His nature. There is absolutely zero possibility that He's going to pull the rug out from under us. There is, and I'm glad for this because I know who I am. You guys laugh when I give you these examples because they are funny. They are humorous. But I'm being dead serious here. I know who I am. And if there was one person that God could look at and say, you know what, I, I don't know. I, It's me. (coughs) I know who I am. But I don't have to worry that God is going to change his mind. That he's going to abandon me. That he's going to take away what he has promised me. Paul says in the book of Philippians, one of the most important passages in the life of a believer is that I am confident that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. Now, if I'm the one who started the good work in me, if I'm the one who started salvation, then I'm in trouble. Okay? Because I can attest to a lot of projects that I have not seen through to completion. Fortunately, Steph's not here because she can remember more of them. Okay? But when Paul says, I am confident that he who started a good work in you will see it through to completion, Paul acknowledges that it's God who started the good work in us. So he will what? He will see it all the way through to completion. Later on here in the book of Romans, Paul writes... Those who he has predestined, he has called, those whom he has called, he will justify those whom he justifies, he will glorify the whole, it's a done deal. The process is concluded. From God's end of the bargain, it's done. We don't have to worry that he's going to change his mind. He will never leave you or forsake you. By the way, since I am big on context, if you back up just one verse from here, the beginning of chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been, what? Justified. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we, also, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope. We've been justified. Just for a little theological refresher here, let me explain that word justification. When Paul says we've been justified, he means that God has declared us to be righteous. He declares us to be righteous. He has declared our sins, past, present, and future to be removed. What was that last one? Future. That means He's forgiving you for the stuff you haven't done yet. Do you get that? That doesn't mean we get to go out and do whatever we want because God's going to forgive us. Because the heart that says we can do that is the heart that I would ask if God has forgiven any of your sins. But He's declared all of our sins to be removed, we are now justified by the justifier. God has declared us to be justified. Not me. Not you. Not the guy who baptized me. Not the guy who heard my profession of faith. God justified me. And because of that, we have peace with God through Christ. Through Jesus, we've obtained access to God. We can go into God's presence. We can pray to the Father directly. We don't need an intermediary. We don't need a priest because we are a nation of priests. We are priests, each of us who's placed their faith in Christ. And why can we go before God? Because of God's grace. Because God has given us the ability to stand in his presence. Uh, the, there's a really, really, really good picture in the Old Testament in the book of Esther. How many of you are familiar with the book of Esther? Okay, a few. All right. So Esther's this young Jewish girl who gets uh, basically picked in a lottery to become the, the king's new wife. Right? Yay, sweepstakes. I never win anything. <laughs> I don't know if that's a great choice. But she becomes his wife, and, and through the, the, the scheming of his right-hand man, it comes out that the people of Israel, the Israelites, that are captives of the Persians at this point, are going to be executed. They're going to be killed. And so Esther, this young Jewish girl, her uncle comes to her and says, Look, this is what's going to happen. God has put you here for this reason, at this place, in this time. You need to go to the king and, and, and get it stopped. And now Esther's got some common sense. She's got a good head on her shoulders. She says, uh, you know, uncle, I love you and I love our people, but if I go to the king without him summoning me, he's gonna have me killed. Now, why is that a good picture for us? Because if it weren't for God's grace, if it weren't for Jesus' death, if it weren't for God declaring us to be justified, If we were to step into God's presence in prayer, God would be justified in killing us dead. Going back to Esther, when she goes before the king, and everybody in the court sees her step into the room, and there's a collective gasp, right? You can see it almost like a cheap (laughs) B-movie. They're waiting to see if the king is going to extend grace or if he's going to have her executed as is the law of the land. And he extends his scepter and he grants her grace. God's done that for us. That's what Paul's talking about here in chapter 5. Since God's given us that grace, we can walk before God. We can stand in his presence. We don't have to cower. We don't have to hide. We don't have to be afraid because He has told us to boldly come to Him with our prayers and petitions. Why would we rejoice in hope? Y'all see how this ties together? We don't stand in our unrighteousness before God. Because if God counted our iniquity, what does Scripture say? Who could stand? Right? Let me put it back in Paul terms. Right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if God counted our sins against us, we're done. Nobody could stand. But instead, we have access to God by His grace through faith in Christ. And because of that, we can glory in, we can boast in, we can revel in, we can rejoice in the hope, the confident expectation of God's glory. Does anybody else see that as big a deal as I do? Because let me tell you, when I, was sitting, I, I typed up about 99% of these notes Wednesday night after prayer meeting. I didn't get out of here until close to quarter till eight. Right? Which for me, quarter till eight, that's late at night. <laughs> because of what time I get up in the morning. So I was driving home, my eyes were all cloudy. But when I got to that, when I when I realized the implication of what Paul wrote here, right? Now, now mind you, I am sitting back there, because those chairs are more comfortable to type at than, than sitting up here with the laptop on my lap. I'm sitting back there by myself in an empty sanctuary, and I nearly jumped up and threw my chair back and started jumping up and down when I realized what Paul wrote. By myself. It was only a desperate grasp of what little dignity I may have that kept me from bouncing around this place like a fool. That's the picture of rejoicing that Paul is giving us. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we have been declared justified. We have been granted peace with God. Because of faith in Jesus, we have access to God's throne room. We can stand before the Almighty. And we can stand because God's given us that grace. And because of that grace, we can be happy about God's glory. Why do we need God's grace to be happy about God's glory? What condition are we in if we don't have God's grace? Uh Uh-huh. All right, let me pull another example from Scripture. Think about the Old Testament. Think about the book of Exodus. You're going to have to forgive me these references to the Old Testament. That's the class I'm going through right now. So just like last time I was going through classes, you guys are going to get a lot of examples from the material that I'm going through. Right? In the book of Exodus, after Moses comes down from the mountain, what does he look like? He looks like a flashlight. Okay? His face is shining bright because of the reflected glory of God. And how do the people of Israel act? Yeah. Moses, please, don't look at us. Why? Here's Moses. He's lost his temper at him. He's a sinner like they are. They know that. Why did he run off and hide in the desert for 40 years? Because he murdered someone. Right. And yet that reflected glory of God, just the reflection of the glory of God causes the people to say, don't look at us. Why did God protect Moses from his glory on the mountain? It would kill him in his sins. He couldn't stand the holiness of God. Right. So God showed him grace and cut out a cleft in the mountain, and tucked Moses in the cleft of the mountain, and said, I'm going to pass by, and you get to see the hem of the back part of my robe. I'm not a seamstress. But generally speaking, because I live with one, I have learned that hems ain't very big. Right? Generally not. They're like, So God says, Moses, I'm going to show you this much of the glory of my robe. Because that's all you can stand. Because we have that grace, we can rejoice at the expectation of the glory of God. Remember what we were talking about last week? Jesus is coming back. How's Jesus coming back? He's coming back in his Father's glory with a host of angels, right? We should not be cowering in fear that Jesus is coming back. We ought to be reveling in that hope, in that expectation. We ought to be excited. We ought to be looking forward to it. Are we? <clears throat> If I wind up coming down with this cold, I may have one less child in the house. (sighs) I haven't decided which one's expendable. As I was reading through this and thinking about the glory of God, I was reminded of the Westminster Shorter Catechism which is a tool that's used for teaching children the tenets of Christianity. It's used primarily by those in the Reformed churches. Um, The very first question, uh, and before you think a catechism is something to be avoided, a catechism is nothing more than a question and answer tool to teach people truth about something, right? So uh, a, a question and answer um, by the way, those kids in Awana, it's a catechism. Um, the first question in the Westminster Catechism for children, this is for small children. This is for children ages like three and up, right? First question, what is the chief end of man? In other words, why are we here? What's our purpose? The answer, man's chief end, man's purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Did you catch that? To glorify God and to do what? Enjoy. When was the last time you thought about your relationship with God as something to be enjoyed? See, we we. I don't want you to get the idea that we shouldn't, see God in a sense of awe and fear and trembling and respect because those are scriptural ideas and those are... I mean, He's God, right? Without His grace, we would be burned to ash just thinking about His glory. But at the same time, we're supposed to enjoy Him. How long? Forever. Is that just talking about an eternity when we get there? No. No. Forever starts when we come to that place where we experience God's grace. Do you enjoy God today? Really? Okay, look, there is nothing in the Baptist faith and message that says you can't smile when you walk into a church. The Stoics went out back around the third century. Okay? Get that off your face. We need to start acting like we enjoy God. And we can because of Christ. Now, moving on from verse (laughs) 2. And I'm about to call Paul the king of making, a short story long. Um, He doesn't stop in telling us that we ought to rejoice in the certainty of the glory of God. But then he also says that we rejoice in our sufferings. Oh, because that's natural. How many of you ever stubbed your toe? Middle of the night. Walking through a dark room. That coffee table was not there when I went to sleep. Do you rejoice in your suffering? (laughs) No. No. Nope, rejoicing is not generally the idea that comes to my mind in the middle of the night when I bang my toe into a piece of furniture. But Paul's not being sarcastic. It's not because Paul is never sarcastic. He's very often sarcastic. But here, he's not. He says we glory in, we revel in our afflictions, our tribulations, our troubles. So he's not talking about our natural response because my natural response to suffering is not yay! Right? And he's not talking about some kind of over-pious sadism or or masochism. He's not talking about those people that that are only happy when they're sad. You met somebody like that? They're kind of an emotional vampire. Right? The only time they're happy is when they're complaining about everything. You don't like being around people like that. He's not talking about that kind of pious idea that we have to, it, we don't all need to become monks who swear a vow of poverty and a vow of chastity and a vow of, uh, of, of just, I'm only eating bread and water for Christ. That's not what he's talking about. Why does he tell us we ought to rejoice in our suffering? Because suffering produces endurance. So we should revel in our suffering because it makes us stronger. Now, As bizarre as that is, that makes a little bit of sense. Okay? Back in January, almost a year ago, Steph and I decided to get a membership at the gym, Planet Fitness. Now, let me tell you, that was a hard decision because I was five years out of the military. And while I was in the military, PT was mandatory. And I look, when I retired, anything that the military had called mandatory, oh, nothing to do with that. Right? So the first year after I, I went back as a civilian hire, and they sent out the email, flu shots for everybody. You know what my response was? Civilian, don't have to. And I didn't. I still haven't. (laughs) Five years now. Right? And then, you know, you've got mandatory PT. Civilian, don't have to. Military guys, got to shave. Not so much. Got to keep your hair short. Nope. Right? And then five years down the road, we get talking, you know, we probably ought, to start doing something to at least maintain the shape that we're in. Even though I like to say that round is a shape, because it is, and aerodynamically, the more perfectly round something is, the better shape it's in. So, if I'm talking aerodynamics, I ought to become more round. However, if I don't want to wind up taking 38 medications a day, For high blood pressure and high cholesterol and heart attacks and and so on and so forth. If I don't want to have to take medication for my blood sugar, if I don't want to, and I definitely don't want to stick myself with insulin every day because I don't like needles, okay? Right? So if I want to avoid all of those things, I probably ought to start working not to be so round. So we got a membership to the gym. And it was hard to walk in. But I did, I sucked it up, and I did it, don't tell her, I did it to encourage her to do it, you didn't hear that, (laughs) so I I went, (laughs) in. yeah, look, if I thought it loud enough, she would hear it, so I go in. And I get on the elliptical because I used to do the elliptical trainer all the time. And I started out at a slow speed with a little bit of resistance. And I, just, I did 30 minutes on the elliptical. I got done. I was tired. Heart rate was through the roof. Sweating. Looked like I just finished a marathon session with Richard Simmons. I was done. And I did that for the first couple of weeks. Because that's all I could do. Then I decided, okay, we're in there. Now it's time to start using some of the weight machines that they've got. Okay, so so I, I pick out a couple of the weight machines and and I start doing some 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 chest presses, right? And I, I start doing some some shoulder shoulder. These are terrible. I hate shoulder presses. I, I have the shoulders of a like six year old girl, right? So I do some shoulder and I do some curls. Because because every guy does curls. It's just one of those things we're required to do when we go to the gym. It's like on contract, right? And so after after I did my my it was tricep presses and and chest presses and 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 these things. Whatever whoever came up with this idea that just right. So I did those, and then the next morning I got up to take a shower, and I went eh. eh. It's 4 o'clock in the morning. I'm not sure I can get dressed. Everything hurt. It ached. It pained. The muscles were stiff and sore. And I'm like, I'm trying to... St- oh, oh, everything. It's just... Uh, uh, it hurt. But you know, after a few weeks, I was able to lift more. I was able to increase the weight. I was able to increase the uh, number of times that I lifted that weight. See, because that hardship, that struggle, produced endurance. And on the elliptical, I, I went from the elliptical to the treadmill. I'm still not running on the treadmill because that's one thing I refuse to do on principle. Right? But I can go longer on the elliptical and the treadmill without I even did the stair, the the, mm, torture device. It's a stair conveyor belt. It's like walking up a down escalator, right? For 45 minutes at a time. Like 1,400 steps. And yeah, I thought my legs were going to fall off. But I was able to do it because I had built up that strength. I had built up that endurance. So when Paul says that suffering builds endurance that makes sense but then he doesn't stop there does he he says that endurance produces character great fantastic all right i like to think it wasn't that long ago i was a kid and i hated hearing that phrase from either of my parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles or teachers anybody it builds character you know what that translates to in the life of a kid This is going to be terrible. You're out in the backyard, you're playing ball. Now, this never happened to me because we lived out in the woods. We didn't have a next-door neighbor. But you're playing ball, and you hit the ball over the fence, and it breaks the neighbor's window. Right? So you sneak in the house and nobody knows, and they know. You need to go talk to Mrs. So-and-so and let her know that you broke her window. I don't want to go do that. It'll build character. Man. Right? Now, does it? Yeah. Now, great thing, just to, just to prepare you youngsters, okay? This is something that is genetic and it is passed on generation to generation because I know I've said the same stuff to my kids. Right? You need to go talk to the next-door neighbor and let him know that you threw the ball over the fence because it's good for you. It builds character. In other words, it's going to be embarrassing, it's going to be awkward, it's going to be one of the hardest things you will ever do, but it's good for you, like eating broccoli or Brussels sprouts. Yeah, I know. Or even worse, lima beans. But you know, the reason that parents use that line is because it's true. Right? Building character, that's something that you want your child to to have is good character. If they do something wrong, you want them to own up to it. If they do something not as well as they ought to, you want them to own up to it and improve, right? So building character is a good thing. We just don't like the term because it reminds us of unpleasant stuff. So Paul says that we rejoice in our suffering because that produces endurance, And endurance produces character, and character produces what? Hope. Character produces that certainty of what's going to happen. That anchor, again, that anchor that holds us fast in our faith. That hope that has been tested. Why does that word hope have a guarantee, a certainty with it? Well, Because we're not the first ones that God's made a promise to. And everybody that he made promises to, he's kept. Right? So that anchor has been tested. Now I, I think about those times back on the, on the farm, back when I was a kid and, 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 and learning <laughs> character, <laughs> doing things that I probably shouldn't have done. Right. Some of the harebrained stuff we did as kids that that sounded like a good idea at the time. Right. But then in implementation, it needed some bugs worked out of it. This anchor of hope doesn't have bugs to be worked out. If I were to if I were to draw the, the picture of an anchor. Right. What what holds the anchor? When you drop it off the boat, what, what holds the anchor to the boat? A rope, a chain, something, right? So if we go with a rope, if, if we're talking about a small boat, because that's what would have been understandable here in Israel because they didn't have ocean front property. They had the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Seas. So they used small boats. So it would have been a rope, right? So well, you just take the anchor in one hand and the rope in the other hand and go like this and they, they somehow... No, you tie a knot in it, Right? What kind of knot do you tie in it? Not just one that won't come undone, but as the rope pulls, what does the knot do? It gets tighter. see so yeah, so the the rope the knot in our anchor of hope has been tested. It has been pulled tight. It's not going to come untied when the boat starts moving because of the wind and the waves. It's not going to separate from the anchor. And the the rope itself, any weaknesses in the rope have already been purged. Any any place where the rope could have broken, it's gone. The rope is secure. The rope is fast. The knot holding the rope to the boat, it's not going anywhere. That anchor of hope, as Paul says here, does not cause us to be shamed it doesn't mislead us if i throw the anchor into the water and my boat still moves right now especially if i've got a bunch of a bunch of guys out on a boat and we're fishing and i throw anchor right and then 15 minutes later the boat is blown out of position, how am I going to look? I'm going to be kind of sheepish, right? See, Paul says that hope does not put us to shame. It doesn't mislead us because God has proven himself faithful over and over and over again. That hope is confident. That hope is confident expectation that God's going to do what he says he's going to do. So we don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to be afraid that God's not going to keep His word. So, what does this have to do with anything? Well, you know, when I go out and I live my life and I'm going through suffering and and, and I don't let it break me and I don't act like the world's coming to an end and I don't... I'm not saying this is easy. I don't let that suffering define me. And I even have joy. People are going to point and they're going to ask why, how? I'm going to be able to hold my anchor up. I'm able to hold my hope up and I'm just say because I, I trust God. this is not easy. I can't do this on my own, but I trust God. Why do you trust God? How do you know God's there? Why would a good God let you go through that? Well because I know when I went through this over here, he got me through it and he strengthened me through it. And, and I have confidence in his promise that he's not going to leave me or forsake me. And, and when I went through this over here, he was there. And, and when my friend went through this, he was there. And when I look at all of the stuff that he promised he would do in his word, he's done it. How can I go through it like that? Because my anchor is fast. My anchor ain't going to move. Because my anchor is not in me. It's in God. I know that He's going to do what He said He's going to do. How do I know that? Well, let's finish up this passage. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through what? Through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. God has given the Holy Spirit to each believer. Now, once again, for those of you that were in Sunday school, you know this to be fact. Because I told you all this morning, the reason I printed out the lesson for Sunday school was because I forgot to order the books. I did not print those lessons out until last night. Wednesday, I was working on this lesson. Wednesday. Saturday. I didn't do this on purpose. God did. (laughs) The Holy Spirit, who God gives to each of us, when we are at that point of faith where we place our hope and trust in Jesus Christ alone, the Holy Spirit enters our life, changes who we are, regenerates us, makes us new, right? That same Holy Spirit testifies to us The work that God has done. Because my flesh won't believe it. If you ever read the Bible before you were saved and then read the Bible after you were saved, did it mean something different to you? Yeah, why? Because the Holy Spirit shows you things. Things that were there before that you didn't pay any attention to and you wouldn't believe because your flesh won't believe it. The Holy Spirit testifies to the identity and work of Jesus in our lives and for our lives. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us, praying when we don't know what to pray. You ever have that happen? You're in a situation where you don't know what to pray? Like just about every time you pray? (laughs) Maybe that's just me. Sometimes I don't know what to pray for a situation. Would it be better for the person to be healed or would it be better for the person to pass? Would it be better for the whatever? I don't know what to pray. The Holy Spirit does. Paul says the Holy Spirit prays intercession and, and, and groanings that we can't even understand. that may not even be audible. But we feel them. The Holy Spirit opens up our minds to understand the Scripture. Gives us the power to minister to people. Gives us the words to say when we need to have them. And so that hope does not put us to shame. That hope does not cause us to be misled. And so... As we get ready to continue observing this preparatory time, whether you celebrate Christmas or not, whether you do it up in the traditional American fashion or not, as we go through these next four weeks, I want to challenge you with Paul's words Rejoice in hope. Of God's glory. Revel in it. This is the season. Culturally. Where the United States recognizes. The celebration. Of something that happened. No Jesus probably wasn't born in December. Most likely based on the, the evidence from scripture. He was born sometime in the spring. Okay. Okay. Yes, the church appropriated days that had been set apart for celebrations by other faith groups and took those days and turned them into celebrations of Christian ideas. So whether you celebrate Christmas or not, the fact of the matter is there's a world out there who recognizes that most Christians... Celebrate the birth of Christ in December. So when you walk around for the next few weeks, stop looking like somebody's rolled up the Sunday paper and taken it to your forehead. Stop looking like the meanest person on the block. Stop looking like somebody who can't see anything right with the world. And start acting like somebody who rejoices in the certainty of the glory of God.